Father, I thank you um, for your grace. Father, I pray at this moment that we hear your words and not mine. Father, these people did not come here to hear me. Father, like the people of Sinai, as they prepared to meet their God, who spoke and thunder and lightning, who shook the mountains as he spoke. Father, they are those people prepared themselves to hear the words of God. And these people tonight have come to hear the words of God because my words will fall to the floor right when they come out of my mouth. But it is your words who pierces to the very heart. Father, that pierces us, that convicts us, that encourages us, that restores us, Father. And that's what I pray for. I don't want to hear my voice. I've heard it for 26 years, and it's annoying, Father. I pray that you speak to us in a way maybe that's new to us, in a way that encourages us, that refreshes our soul. Father, speak. Because if you don't, nothing will change. Your words speak creation from nothing. Father, your words speak regeneration to a heart that is dead. Father, your words is what we desire. Please give us your words. So the book I want to actually introduce is the book of Habakkuk. Some people call Habakkuk. Uh, I think that sounds weird. So I use the word Habakkuk. So if you don't know where Habakkuk is, look in your table of contents. That'll help you. Um, Habakkuk is a very special book to me. It's actually my favorite book of the Bible. And I wanted to do two things um, here in this message. I want to do one thing first. I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. I want to tell you a little bit about my faith story. But I also wanted to do something. I wanted to give you a message that would help you, especially in the times that we are in economically. And so I felt I could fulfill both those purposes in the book of Habakkuk. You might think that's really weird. I mean, who's heard a sermon from Habakkuk? Nobody. Maybe the youth. Oh, bam, one lady right there. That's because she went to the future, bought my tapes, and then listened to it. Anyways, um, so this book is a very short book, but the message of this book, I think, is so important. And this is why this book has helped me get through one of the darkest times of my life. And I think it can help you in the same way because some of you here right now are experiencing financial hardship like you never have before. Some of you are losing loved ones. Some of you are losing your jobs. Some of you, the bills are stacking higher and higher. You just lost your home and all you want to do is keep food on the table for your kids. Some of you feel as though you are a speck in the vast universe that God created and controls, and he just doesn't have time for you right now. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel cold. Maybe you feel as though you're in a place right now that God cannot see and maybe does not care to look. I want to tell you that this message is for you. This message is for all of you who have ever felt lost, abandoned, discarded, without hope, direction, or help. This message is is for you. And let's be honest, this is all of us. We all will experience loss, we all experience pain, we all experience suffering. No one comes through those doors who is perfect. No one comes through those church doors who doesn't have imperfection in their life. No one comes through those doors whose life is all put together. No one comes through those doors whose family life is full of bliss 
and prosperity and is like a utopian society from some 70s movie. No one comes through those doors with everything figured out. Jesus said that he came for the sick and not the healthy. What does he mean when he says that? Is Jesus saying that there are people out there in the world who don't need him? No, he's saying there's two types of people. There is one that knows they need him. There is the other that is blind to that fact and they consider themselves healthy. This message is for the sick. This message is for you because if you're being honest, you have felt pain or you will feel pain and this message is for you. This message comes from the book of Habakkuk. Oh, this might be hard to read with this mic, but you know, we'll make it work. The book of Habakkuk is actually kind of strange. The book is structured in a way that no other book in the Bible is actually structured. What's going on here is the prophet of God is making a case to the almighty creator. This is how it works out. Habakkuk makes a complaint to God. God then responds. Habakkuk complains again, then God responds, and the book ends with a prayer. It's very different. It's almost as if you were in a courtroom and someone was advocating a case and the judge responding back, then advocating again, responding back, and then there's prayer. Although I don't know if a lot of courtrooms have prayer in them. Either way, that's what's going on in the book of Habakkuk. So let's start in Habakkuk chapter 1, starting with verse uh, 2. Bear with me. I've got to figure out how to do this with a microphone. Nahum, Habakkuk. Awesome. All right, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting with verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, think about how that book starts. Habakkuk starts out and he says this, How long, O Lord, will I have to wait? How long, how many times will I say help and you don't listen? That's us, is it not? When we experience hardship, that's us. Habakkuk sees a real problem. His nation, that is the blessed people of God, is now perverting justice, and it breaks his heart. So he brings this problem to God, but at first he accuses God, not himself. But this is common in the history of Israel. If you look at Numbers chapter 14... You'll see this. Israel has one repetitious action over and over and over again throughout their history. From the crossing of the Red Sea to the taking of the land of Canaan, they do one thing and they do it very well, and that is this. They complain. They complain and they accuse God of not having their best interests in mind. So turn to Numbers chapter 14. We're start with verse 4. If you're confused on where Numbers is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You're right there. If you're in Matthew, you are way out of the ballpark there. So I'm going to read as you're flipping there. Sorry if I didn't give you enough time. But Phil says I only have 30 minutes and I time myself and this was an hour and a half. So that's a joke, you think. Okay. Numbers chapter 14, starting with verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. 
all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly listened to them. If only we had died in Egypt in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This, honestly, is one of the most depressing scenes in the scriptures. And this is why. The people of God are about to go into the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. They are on the verge, they are on the edge, they are on the precipice of making good on a 600-year-old promise. They were just in bondage. They were just slaves. They were just making bricks, their hands chained for Pharaoh. And right when there's a bump in the road, right when they realize that the fulfillment of this promise took a little work, what happened? It's your fault. You did this. You brought us out here. You want us to die out here. You want us to fall by the sword. Think about that. On the verge of being the great nation that God had prepared them to be. From Genesis 12, this land was promised to them. And they are on the verge of getting it, and they fall short because of one little bump in the road. But we do this. And the logic follows is this. If it's not my fault, it's God's fault. If my finger didn't pull the trigger, then God's did. Now think about this. When I, when I was a little kid, I, I had this same problem. I, I had this same mentality as a child. I remember growing up in church, my grandparents used to always take me to church, took me to a, very pres, uh, took me to a Presbyterian church, uh, very formal. I, I dressed a lot better than I'm dressing now as a little kid. Um, by the way, if you don't like this, my wife dressed me. And if you like it, it's still my clothes. So I'm kind of in there. Either way, I used to go to church with my grandparents all the time, and I never doubted that God existed. Never. My question was always, is this God good? Because what I saw was my life. I went to a church. God's good. God's in control. Very high view of God in the Presbyterian church. God's in control. Um, nothing, the hair doesn't, a follicle of hair doesn't fall from your head without God ordaining it, right? God controls everything. But then I came home, and all I saw was pain. And all I saw was loss. So the only conclusion in my head is this God is not good. Because when I came home, this is what I came home to. I came home to a mother who was raising two kids on $900 a month. We were on welfare. We were in section eight housing. My mom was a severely manic depressive and bipolar, and she just could not provide the stability that we needed as children. I was in a very low-funded school district, so um, they couldn't help me with my dyslexia. So I actually didn't learn how to, to, how to read until the age of 13, entering high school. I couldn't read a word. And then on top of that, at the age of 12, my father died. He overdosed. And my father, with his friends was driven up in the back of a pickup truck 
and thrown out of the back of the pickup truck right in front of the ER in Ventura, California, like a piece of garbage. And I couldn't handle that because the God that I remember hearing my grandparents talk about and the God that I saw interacting in my home and in my life weren't the same. But I remember on April 4th, 1997, I took all these problems to God. And I took all the complaints that I had about his, what I appeared to me to be a lack of concern for me. I took all those to God on that day. And a man by the name of Bobby Jerome Green, my basketball coach at the time, shared the gospel with me and told me that God did love me, that God did care for me, and that God died for me. I tell you this story not because I want you to give me sympathy or to grieve with me. I tell you this story because I think the first thing we learn from Habakkuk is honesty. I think if you look at the book of Habakkuk, there are three things that will help you overcome grief. And the first one is this, honesty. You have to be real with God. You have to be. Think about... Habakkuk's problem. Think about his scenario. His people were supposed to be the light of the world, and now they're perverted like the world. His people were going to bring about the Messiah. His people were going to bring about the climax of redemptive history. The unfolding of the divine drama was going to peak in these people's lives. These people were going to bring the solution for sin. And what was happening? The moral fibers that made up these people, that made up this society, was withering away right in front of Habakkuk's eyes. And he couldn't take it. He couldn't bear the sight. So he opened his heart to God, and he was honest with God. And I think this is the first point in being and getting over our grief is honesty, because think about it. God is omniscient. What are you really going to hide from him anyways? He already knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows the words you're going to say, when you're going to say them, and what inflection and what accent you're going to say them in. So why hide them from him? If there is pain and there is suffering in your heart, tell him. Have you ever thought about what prayer even is? Prayer is not informing God of information he doesn't already know. Prayer is not about informing an ignorant God. Prayer is actually more about you than it is God. Prayer is about you submitting yourself to God, saying your will be done, your kingdom come. Prayer is you doing this like First Peter says, cast your cares on him who cares for you. It has to start with honesty. I think the next, uh, the next step is this, to overcome grief, We have to see the grace of God. And I think we see this in God's response. If you go back to the book of Habakkuk, starting in verse 5, this is God's response. He says this to Habakkuk, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you will not believe even if you were told. Now, when you first read this, you think, man, Habakkuk's going to win the lottery, right? He's just told, 
by God, I'm going to do something you can't believe. I'm going to have to, I'm going to do something that you have to see in order to believe in. Maybe what's going to happen is God is going to subdue all the nations of the world under the Israelites. Then they can never corrupt them anymore. Problem solved. No, that's not what's going to happen. What God is about to unveil is something much more dark than that. Something much more less tasteful than what Habakkuk wants. Look down at verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than the wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like vultures swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert winds and gathers prisoners like sand. They derade kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthly ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. What is about to happen will crush the prophet Habakkuk. Because what he sees is a nation that was God's and is now going to be destroyed by a nation that is wicked, that is full of idolatry, that is bent on violence and greed. And he can't make sense of it. The question is this. Did God see something morally appealing in these Babylonians? Did God think, I need somebody to judge my people? I know, the Babylonians, they're great people. Let's get them over here. No. Does it mean that God is restricting his favor from the people of Israel and now putting on the Babylonians? No. What it means is this. God's in control, and he's using a wicked people to punish a righteous nation. But this does not sit with Habakkuk. This is not something his mind can understand. Look at his response. Start back up in verse 12. O Lord, you are not, or sorry, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Our Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now listen from 14 to 17. Him describe how Israel will be defeated. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up as a dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, his live, sorry, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he 
to keep on emptying his nets and destroying nations without mercy. What is Habakkuk saying? This is, these are Habakkuk's complaint. If you look back in verse 12, he gives three reasons why he believes God cannot do this. God cannot judge a righteous nation by an evil nation, and this is why. His first one is this. Look in verse 12. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. This is what he does in the first line. He uses a sense of parallelism. What he does is says, God, you're everlasting. And then the next line he says, we will not die. Those are similar phrases. What he is saying is this. God, if you cannot be overcome, surely your people cannot be overcome. He makes a connection between the security and strength of God as to the security and strength of his people. The second complaint is found in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? What he's saying here is simply this. God, you're good. You can't use wickedness. God, you're good. You are too pure to touch the wicked Babylonians. His third complaint is this. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This comment right here by Habakkuk is almost humorous. He says that the people of God, his people, are actually righteous. What happened to the people of verse, or chapter 1? In chapter 1, he says, these people have perverted justice. These people actually hem in the righteous. They prevent the righteous from doing anything about it. Then what happens? He goes from saying, these people are wicked, these people are evil, God, please solve this problem. And then he says, oh wait, that's the punishment? No, I don't like that. They're righteous. Just kidding. Right? That's what he's doing. And it is humorous. You can laugh at that point. That's okay. But the underlining problem in all these complaints is this. There is the underlining idea that God owes Israel something. And that's where Habakkuk goes wrong. Because God owes Israel nothing. Look at his first complaint. The first complaint he says is this, that God owes the people of Israel protection simply because they are the people of Israel. But this is completely wrong. The old covenant was not constructed so that we could have God's favor in our pocket. It's not as if God came, contracted himself to us and said, this is what's going to happen. You do this ceremonial law. You, do, you don't eat this. You abide by this dietary law. You make this sacrifice and I'll do you a favor. That's not the function of the law at all. The law is not so you can twist the arm of God and say, you have to shower me with blessings. Look, sacrifice the goat and four pigeons. Boom. Show me the money. Right? That's not it. If you look in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, or sorry, verse 20, Paul actually gives us the purpose of the law, and the humorous part is it's the exact opposite of what Habakkuk is claiming it is. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. I'm in Acts chapter 5. That's why I gave myself little markers. Go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. 
I'm getting there. First Corinthians. There's like a fold in my Bible because pastor's been in it for so long. Just kidding. All right. Romans chapter five, verse 20. The law was added so that trespass might increase. Romans chapter seven, verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. What's the purpose and intent of the law? To show failure. This principle is even amplified when Jesus comes on the scene. What does Jesus say? If you break the law in your thoughts or intentions, you are guilty of the whole thing. Well, then the question is, who can uphold this standard? Who can be obedient in the inner hearts of our, or inner hearts of our thoughts? Inner, I'm just going to destroy that sentence and move over here. Who can be obedient in the mind and in the heart, right? The point is, nobody can. The reason the law is there to show the necessity of grace, not to show that you can bend God's to give you favor. The point is this, we all stand dependent upon God's grace. The second complaint is really simple to get rid of. His second complaint is this, God can't use wicked people. Think about that. Has God ever used wicked people to perform a divine action? Yeah, the crucifixion, right? The most evil, horrendous act in history, and yet it had divine purposes in it. Look to Acts chapter 4. Peter highlights this in his sermon. Actually, it's a prayer after his sermon. It's a prayer that he's giving to God right when he's told he cannot preach of Christ anymore. He prays this prayer. Acts 4, starting with verse 27. It says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant. That's a bad thing. Whom you anointed. But, verse 28 is there. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Habakkuk's second complaint simply does not work. God can be good and use wickedness and still remain good. Philosophically, I don't know how that works, but the Bible says it, so I'll believe it. Next is his third complaint, and this is where that peace that we talked about before starts to rise up again. This idea that God owes Israel favor. Habakkuk says that his people are righteous, and they don't deserve harsh judgment. The people that deserve judgment is Babylon. Israel, or actually Judah at this time, deserves your favor. So maybe what the prophet is saying is, God, we're sinful, but we're not that sinful. Now think about that. That is the delusion that we all have. We have one thing in common in this room, and that is this. We think way too highly of ourselves. Because nobody in this room wants to believe that they're guilty. Nobody. But if we don't believe that we deserve judgment, there's a very dangerous flip side of that that will torment you as you're going through grief. And it is this. If you don't believe you deserve judgment, then you believe that you are owed prosperity. 
there's a very, very, very scary place to be. And this is the hardest hurdle to overcome when you're getting over grief. Because what will happen is life will hit you, hardship will hit you, hit you, and you will say this, and these are very dangerous words. You will say this, God owes me more than this. When the reality of it, and I, I know this is hard to hear, the reality of it is God owes you none of this. See, the true problem of evil, as the theologians have titled it, the theodicy, the true problem of evil is that we are fat on grace. God has blessed us so much that we have a level of comfort and we expect a certain amount of divine favor. And if God pulls away any of it, we feel that we've been violated. Think of it like this. Man, when I was a kid, I loved Christmas. Love Christmas. When I was 10, man, I remember running to my grandparents' house, man, and seeing a mountain of gifts just stacked up, and they all said Paul on them. Ooh. You could see my eyes, like, growing, you know? Man, Tonka trucks, fire trucks, dump trucks. I really like trucks. But then something strange happened. Eleven happened. I turned eleven, and guess what I got for Christmas? Not Tonka trucks, not fire trucks, not dump trucks, not even micro machine trucks. What I got was socks. What I got was socks, flannel shirts, jeans, and shoes. Christmas stunk. But what I didn't realize as a kid, that these gifts weren't owed to me. These gifts were an act of kindness from my family. But think about it. We do the same thing with God. And I'll apply it to my grief. Losing my father was something that was very, very hard for me. Very, very hard for me. My parents got divorced when I was two, like I said. And um, my mom got full custody. But I was, I loved my father and I always wanted to make him happy. And I was living for the words, I'm proud of you, son. And when he passed away, it hurt me. It hurt me deep because he didn't see any of the successes of my life. He didn't see me get married. He didn't see me have a child. He didn't see me graduate college. He didn't see me pass high school, which I shouldn't have done according to the school district. And he didn't see me uh, get my master's degree. All these things he didn't get to see. And I remember him passing away, and it was so hard for me to get over as a kid. But through the mentorship of a youth pastor and through the personal reading in the scriptures, I came to this conclusion, and this may be hard for you to hear. My conclusion was, God did not rob me of my father. God did not take my father away. God gave me a father for 12 years. God gave me a father that I did not deserve. And this is what it's like. This right here is my life with my father. This right here is my life without my father. In both scenarios, there's a gift in my hand. In both scenarios, there is grace. And in both scenarios, I need to be grateful. 
See, because we live between this tension. You can clap. I can still keep talking while you're clapping. (laughs) Okay, I guess I can't. We live between this tension of the world we believe we deserve and the world we actually deserve. Because we all believe we deserve heaven. In actuality, we all deserve hell. And we live in this middle ground, and this is where the tension of life gets us. Because when we enjoy pain, or, or, sorry, bliss, um, happiness, pleasure, when we enjoy those things, you know what that is? It's a little taste of heaven. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, said that heaven and hell is retrospective. What he means is when you get to heaven, you'll almost remember it. You'll almost remember it because you've had a little glimpse of it. Maybe it's the time, and I'll give you this because this is my little piece of heaven. I took my daughter out of the car seat uh, yesterday, um, and I just picked her up. She's only like, she's going to be nine months old. And I picked her up. And I I held her to myself, and I think she felt like she was falling or something like that. She grabbed her little hand, grabbed my shoulder, grabbed my collar, and she pulled towards Daddy. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a man. I cried. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But that little peace, that little joy, that affection, that love, that relationship, you'll feel that and even more in heaven. Now, the other side of it is this. When you experience pain suffering and loss it's like you're experiencing a little bit of hell the problem is you don't realize where you're at you are not down there right now you are right here and that is grace the problem resides when we think we deserve more than we really do because what happens when pain and suffering and sorrow meet us what happens What is going on? This is what's going on. What's going on is God is actually pulling away his grace. He's giving you from a bigger gift. Can the camera guy follow me? I'm running around. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He's keeping his job, right? Okay. I got distracted. Okay. Grace, God. Okay, now I know where I'm at. What happens is we go from a bigger gift to a smaller gift. What is happening is God is actually pulling away some of his grace, and he's allowing us to feel the torment of the world that we've created by our sin. That's what happened when evil occurs. Evil is not when God's out to get you. Evil is not when God is sitting over heaven, looking down an anthill that is the world, and looking, ooh, who can I smite next? Boom. Ha-ha, you got a flat. Boom. Ha, your mortgage rate just went crazy high, and now you're going to lose it. Boom. Ha, there's bankruptcy. That's not what's happening. What's happening is God is pulling away grace and allowing you to suffer the consequences of the actions that we've all have done, and that's called sin. Because the reality of it is this. We all deserve hell. And when we don't get that in full measure, that's grace. And we should be grateful for it. I know, Kevin, I am right. As a youth pastor, I hear these complaints sometimes. I hear students complaining to their parents. And the number one thing I hear is this. But mom, it's not fair. Look, you're like, you have students, right? But mom, it's not fair. Man, trust me, you don't want God to be fair. You don't want God to be fair. If God is fair, we're all in hell. Thank God he's not. And don't ever come to him and say, God, this isn't fair. Don't do that. 
don't slap him in the face with his abundant grace that he lavishes upon you. Don't be ungrateful because what he gives you, you do not deserve. I think this is the first piece or the second piece, sorry, of overcoming grief. And that is you have to see God's grace. You've got to be honest with God. You've got to be real with God, but then you have to see his grace. And this third step, and this is my last step, the last step in overcoming grief is to see God's glory. So to look at that, let's um, look at the prayer of Habakkuk. We're actually going to skip the middle piece of Habakkuk. Let me just fill you in since we are in that story. This is what happened. God responded back to Habakkuk and said this, Habakkuk, you're right. The Babylonians, the Babylonian people will be judged, but you're going to have to wait because right now I'm using them for a divine. Okay, you can hear me. Man, the devil does not want me to preach this sermon today. Can't stop me. All right. Look at the prayer. Oh, sorry, I was telling you what happened to Habakkuk. What happened is God responds, tells Habakkuk, I will judge the Babylonians. I will judge them, but you're going to have to wait. Then after that, he gives five or, uh, five or six woes illustrating the judgment that's going to occur upon the Babylonian people. Skip to chapter 3 and start, let's start with verse 15. Or actually, I think it's verse 4. Yes, or sorry, verse 14. I'll get it out. Now, this is cool. I want to start with verse 14. My point is actually down in 17. But Habakkuk has this image of what God's going to do to the Babylonian people that have tormented the people of Israel. And it's incredible. I mean, the language is just remarkable. The cool thing about this prayer is it's actually a song. It's actually set to music. The people of Judah sang this song till the day this promise was fulfilled. Isn't that awesome? They sang this song patiently waiting for the return of the greatness of their nation and the fall of the evil nation that took them off the map. He says this in verse 14. With his own spear, this being God, you, or sorry, with his own spear, this is being the king of the Babylonians, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though to, or gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Now listen to this. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crops fail, and the field produces no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go on the heights. In verse 17, Habakkuk describes a scene where there is no present blessing from God. 
There is no food. There is no crops. There is nothing. No prosperity. Although despite the grim reality of verse 17, verse 18 still exists. And verse 18 says this, I will choose to rejoice in the Lord my God, my Savior. The question is, how on earth can this happen? How can a man who sees nothing good in his time rejoice in God? I want to focus first on this idea of sovereign. Habakkuk addresses God in two phrases. First he says, my Savior, and then he says, the Lord, my sovereign. Now what does sovereign mean? Sovereign means this. Sovereign means that God is in control of everything. What Habakkuk is saying is in the midst of all this calamity, God is in control doing something. Now, if you tell that to somebody who's in grief, I'll be honest with you, those words are somewhat empty. Because it means nothing about me. It means nothing for me. If I'm going through a trial, I'm going through suffering and pain, and you keep telling me, God's in control. God's in control. God's in control. God is going to glorify himself. Well, good for God. I mean, let's be honest. Because I remember as a child at 12, people telling me that. I know life's hard. I know there's drugs in your house. I know there's drug dealers in your house. I know that your mother kicked you out at the age of 17 because you didn't think it was a good idea to have drugs in the home. And she said, you know what? You're not wanted. I know those bad things have happened to you, and you feel like you've been abandoned. But you know what, Paul? God's in control. Empty words. Empty words. We know that God's sovereign. Romans 11.36 says this, that God, or sorry, that all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know that God's in control, right? God was in control even in the most evil acts of our society. 9-11, the genocides in Uganda, the Holocaust, the acts of Stalin, of Hitler, of Mao. God's always in control. God's always working his glory. We know that. We don't pretend that there's a sense of dualism where God is only winning in the good times, 60% of the time, and Satan is winning in the bad times, 40% of the time, maybe. We don't think that God is just the biggest kid on the playground. We don't think that God is just the most powerful being in the universe. We believe that God is the all-powerful being of the universe. But still, where's the hope? I think the hope is in this. You have to tie this message, this concept, to another biblical concept, and that is our godliness. If you turn to James chapter 1, you'll see where these two concepts collide. God's glory, God's sovereign glory, and our godliness. Now, what do I mean by our godliness? I mean this, our maturity, us becoming more like Christ. James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you win the lottery. You don't have to tell me to do that. I can do that. But thanks, James. No, he says, consider it a pure, he's saying pure joy. He decided to insert an adjective there. Why? Because he's telling you this is absolute joy. 
absolute joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, on the surface, you may not see a dilemma there, but there actually is a moral dilemma there. Because what James might be asking his people is this, to respond improperly to a negative situation. Think about it like this. Let's say I were to bring Big Dave up here. I'm not going to do that because I won't embarrass him like he embarrassed me. No. Say I were to bring him up here and I had a hammer in my hand. And I said, Dave, I'm going to hit you in the face with this hammer. And I go, boom. And I nail him in the face. And he's crying. Teeth are everywhere. Sorry, I'm a youth pastor. I got to be graphic, right? And he's, he's, he's just sobbing. Have you ever seen a big man cry? It's not a good scene. Okay, so he's crying. And then I say, Dave, smile. That's wrong for two reasons. One, I shouldn't be hitting my boss in the face with a hammer. Two, I'm acting, asking him to respond positively to a negative scenario. It's being disingenuine. It's like laughing at a funeral. Do you do that? No. Why? Because that's not a positive response. That's a negative scenario. So you have negative responses. It's exactly why we tell our kids, don't laugh at grandma when she falls on the ground, right? Or when she can't control certain noises, right? You tell, don't laugh at that because that's a bad thing. This is the same thing that James is doing. James is telling his people, hey, trials, you know those things that hurt, the things full of pain? Hey, I want you to be happy about those. It makes no sense unless there is something positive amidst the negativity. He goes on to write. Look back at James chapter 1. We'll read the rest of the verse. Verse 3. Or sorry, I'll start in verse 2 and we'll go through verse 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. What is the positive amidst this negative scenario? The positive is the maturing of your faith. The positive is your godliness. The positive is you becoming more like Christ. This is the beautiful message of the gospel. That although things may look evil, God has intended good. You take a verse like Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? That means that even though the world looks as if it's tilted towards the wicked and favors those who hate God, it is not. The world, the universe, the cosmos are being orchestrated in your favor. Because everything, listen to this, everything in your life is designed for your greatest godliness. What does that mean? Nothing can beat you. Nothing. Think of the story of Joseph. This is a perfect biblical illustration of how this principle works out. Think of Joseph. What happened in Joseph's life? Number one, he was hated by his brothers. He was beat up. He was thrown into a well. He was then sold into slavery. When he got out of slavery, he was experiencing some prosperity. He was then accused falsely of a crime he did not commit. And then he was jailed for that crime. 
terrible, 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 somewhat good, terrible. I think I followed that right. But yet, what does Joseph say at the end of his life? If you go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, I actually have the verse right here, so you don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it to you. In Genesis 50, Joseph is at the end of his life, his brothers who betrayed him, who threw him in a well and sold him to slavery. Me and my sister don't get along, but she's never beat me up, thrown me well, and, thrown me in, and sold me into slavery. So they have big family issues. These, his brothers come before him, and this is what he says to them. He says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. This is what happens when an event happens in time and space. There are things going on behind the scenes, and that is this. It may look, though, that there are evil intentions, people seeking to harm you. But there is always something else behind the scenes, and that is this. God has divine plan to make you more like his son in every scenario. Think about Joseph. Joseph saved the Egyptian nation. Why? Because he had foresight to see that famine was coming. But Egypt was not the only nation saved by this foresight. Israel was. Israel survived on the grain of the Egyptians during this famine. If there is no Israel, there is no Messiah. If there is no Messiah, there is no salvation. Which means this, if there is no Joseph in Egypt, there is no Messiah in Bethlehem. So the way to overcome grief is this. We have to be honest with God. We have to see God's grace. And we have to see God's glory. I want to close with just a personal story of what I believe was the greatest grief I've ever experienced in my life and um, how God got me through that. What happened is uh, my wife and I uh, got married in college, our senior year of college. Um, then we moved to Louisville, Kentucky to go to seminary, like Dave said, because it was a, just the best academic institution that I could find. It was um, recommended by all my theology profs, and it's something I felt that just God was calling me to do. So I moved my wife 2,000-plus miles away from her loving and nurturing family. I like to move away from my family, personally. <laughs> but we moved away, we lived there, and I was working, my wife was working, and I wanted to get done with seminary quick. So I took full units, full-time student, full-time job, running through this thing as fast as I can. And about halfway through seminary, in a year span, I lost my grandfather who took me in um, when I was kicked out when I was 17. I lost my grandmother who taught me how to read and encouraged me to go to college. I lost my stepfather, and my Christmases were half what they used to be. But then something incredible happened. My, my wife and I got pregnant, or my wife got pregnant. And for the first time in a long time, I could have a positive phone conversation with my family. I could tell them that there's life. Amidst all this death, there's life. But then everything came crashing down. And I remember the pain of losing that child was the greatest pain I had ever felt. 
And I remember when we got the news of putting my hands on my wife's belly. And I remember saying goodbye. And I remember being so furious with God. I remember praying, you take this life, you take this breath, and you give it to her because I don't want it if it means she can't have it. And I remember going through a very dark time in my life. I didn't do anything. I decided to quit the ministry because I couldn't serve a God who would allow me to take my wife away from her family who loved her, move her 2,000 miles away from them, lose my family, half my family, and then he takes my child. And I could only afford, because I was a poor seminary student, to go to one funeral of my three family members who lived in California. It was it. I was done. I could not take it. I could not serve a God who would allow this amount of evil. I could not do it. And I remember being on the bathroom floor, crying, sobbing. And I said this, God, I have no faith. I can't do this. If you expect me to have faith right now, you're going to have to give it to me. Because there is nothing in me that can bear this burden. There is nothing in me that can withstand this blow. And at that moment, he gave me faith. At that moment, he gave me grace. When I honestly came before the Father and said, I am hurting, help me, that's when he came to me. And that's when he rescued me. And honestly, I can tell you this, and I know this sounds very, very strange, but I want you to hear this. Because I said the first step was being honest with God. The second step was seeing God's grace. And I tell you this, I am so thankful to God that I was a father for just three short months. And I can say that honestly. Because I did not deserve to be a father. Now, what about the glory? I tell you this, God has used this trial in my life. I love my wife more. I love our daughter more. I love him more. I love ministry more. I love people more. How you get over grief is you be honest with God. You see the grace of God, and then you see the glory of God. I want to end reading a passage from Romans 8, starting with verse 31. I just want you to listen. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to be done. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you.